I'm Noel Holzman, and this is Open Concept from Yahoo Finance. I made this podcast to bring attention to the entrepreneurs and innovators in Canadian business. Each week, I will be sitting down with someone who is leading their industry, pioneering a new product or service, or just making important things happen. This week, taste is king. There's so many multifacets to kind of why I started the company and how I've learned and how I've learned from my kids. Hi, I'm Dion Laszlo-Baker. I'm the CEO and founder of DB's Organics. An entrepreneur's life is nothing if not a series of pivots. Plans change, opportunities emerge, life gets in the way. But even by those standards, Dion Laszlo-Baker's career has evolved in some unexpected ways. Well, maybe unexpected for most people. Dion started out in science. She has a doctorate in maternal fetal toxicology from the University of Toronto and began her career working at Toronto Sick Kids Hospital, where she won a Humanitarian of the Year Award, among other honours. It was a distinguished career in the making, and it very much did not involve developing frozen snacks, negotiating with massive chains like Whole Foods for the most valuable shelf space in the store, or delving deep into the psychology behind purchasing decisions, grappling with issues like nutrition being good, but when does healthy start to be a hang-up? When do you put vegan on the label? This is Dion's life today. As founder and CEO of DB's Organics, her fruit pops and freezies are now in some 5,000 stores across North America. The company's growth has soared 300% in the past year alone. How Dion navigated that shift from maternal health expert to a kid's snack champion is both inspiring and in truth a little mystifying, but let's hear from her. I had two young kids who were eight and 10 at the time and our son David was eight and we decided that we would take him off of all artificial color, artificial flavoring, artificial sweeteners, and he would have a diet from the earth because we really saw that he did so much better that way. And it was a conscious decision. And so I had, I struggled with finding him the types of, of treats that I felt comfortable giving him. And he'd go to a birthday party, come home and kick his sister because he'd be so upset he couldn't have the cake or couldn't have a treat. And he didn't want the fruit leather that I sent along. Because I knew about toxicology and about human health, I, I wanted to limit the amount of pesticides and herbicides and artificial things that I knew shouldn't be in our bodies. And I struggled to find that in the grocery store. So I was in the kitchen with my kids, not looking for a business. Jocelyn was making popsicles and David was making tea and they started arguing over who would do what with me. And Jocelyn said, Mommy, let's make teasicles. And it was kind of a light bulb moment where I thought, wow. I could actually create something really cool that I could give David. And I bet you other people would like this too. And that was the birth of what became DBs. I'm always interested in that entrepreneurial pivot because for a lot of people, myself included, you you could go to a health food store and and conclude that these are the offerings and you go to Whole Foods and, and, and the selection seems good. A lot of people would think that if it wasn't there, whatever it is, that you were thinking of that there's probably not a market for it but you you obviously thought okay that not only is something not there that you specifically wanted but that there could be how did you have the sort of confidence and the awareness to sort of fill in those gaps you know i think i there was probably a, 
a bit of naivete when I was beginning this process. And I just thought, well, everyone's going to want this if it was available. And it was really a learning curve of what is it that the customer really does want. Um, There was the belief that, you know what, I'm looking for these kind of treats that I could give my kids and the belief that other people are as well. And, um, you know, really, if you want to do it properly, you do a market study and you'd look at the Nielsen and the spins data and you'd see, you know, is there a market for that? But it can be challenging where there may, you know, hemp hearts, for example. If you went and did a market study in the very beginning, they might say no. There's yes. no market for it because nobody knows what it is. Yeah. So you really do have to put yourself out there. And, you know, I started with probably one of the tougher areas, which is frozen. But then when we launched our freezies last year that were shelf stable, it just went ballistic. And we were selling in the hundreds of bags a week. You kind of learn the ropes as you go into, okay, what does the customer want? What's simplicity? What's out there that they may you may have had as a child, but it's not available now? And wouldn't that be awesome if it was? And it was clean label. And so that's how the company has kind of developed and grown. And you started off with the teapops, right? But right. now you, you don't offer those, right? No, we don't. Okay. And that was a, like a pivotal moment in, in the business as okay. well. And what was what was the, the thinking behind the switch there from tea pops to now it's the fruit super freezies and fruit pops fruit pops yeah yeah it was actually I had had for a year or two I kept hearing from customers saying oh no I don't give those to my kids they've got caffeine and okay. I thought oh this is exhausting trying to about how do you tell the customer that these are herbal teas, they're good for children. I'm a maternal fetal toxicology background. I I can tell you that they're fine and they're good, but how do you put that on a box? And I was in Whole Foods one day and I happened, as I often did, went up to the freezer and I saw a woman holding our box of pink lemonade and a competitor's box of lemonade. And she put ours back. And I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, excuse me, could I ask you a question? how come you put those ones back? And she said, well, this one has fruit in it and this one just has tea and I don't give my kids caffeine. And I thought, thank you so much. And I thanked her. I told her who I was and the company and she ended up buying two of our boxes. And I went back to my team and I said, I'm done. These are called fruit pops infused with herbal teas. (laughs) And, And we were able to get that message across. And uh, but it's again, it's listening to your customer. What is speaking to them, and how do you get your message across? So, if I could just back up from that epiphany in the kitchen where you you concluded that there is an opportunity here, mm-hmm. what was the next step? Was it a matter of developing a business plan? Did you do this sort of informal market research of going to the grocery store, the health food store? Like, how did you sort of operationalize that idea? Well, you know, there's there were many steps in that. Um, it was first, yes, go to the buyers uh, for the retail stores. Is there an interest from them? Would they launch a product like this? And even sorry, and even just not to be pedantic, but even knowing how do you even access the the buyers right. and and then and, and kind of who are you? Obviously, you would have the confidence based on your academic and sort of background. Otherwise, but. But even having that conversation with with a buyer without having a product. Right, right. You know, and I think that you touched on the right thing was I'm a researcher by training. And so I was up for the challenge of how do I, A, get this frozen popsicle from Victoria to land in Florida in perfect condition? Yeah. How do I do that that chain of logistics? And how do I get it 
into the buyer and into the customer's mouth. And so I really methodically went and the way I would have set up a research study, I did the same thing. Yes. And I applied my knowledge and really started looking, okay, how am I going to get in front of that buyer? And it was really picking up the phone and making the calls. And it was tough. But it was going and starting to pitch it to people and getting it into onto the shelf. So then it was finding a commercial kitchen. Where could I make this? How could I package it? How could I keep it stable? How could you bite into it without it being like a rock and you break your tooth? Yes. And so there were all those steps and then graphic design, coming up with a name, coming up with trademarks, all those first steps, getting the finance. There's so many things that evolved over that year and a half before so it was it was year and a half from from sort of the idea to the actual product in terms of sort of scoping out the market opportunity so you didn't necessarily think first off of like okay victoria and then possibly nanaimo and vancouver were you thinking like north america wide or how did you sort of envision that part you know, I always, I felt that if I was going to pull myself away from my the career that I had trained to do, yes, and we were going to personally invest in starting this business, that I was going to go big or don't go at all. Okay. And so I always had the vision that this would be across North America. Okay. With a bigger reason why I did it across North America. But so I never kind of felt like I'm just going to go little. I really do want to take this to a bigger level. It was a personal challenge um, myself to get it there. Yeah. And then when with that sort of the going big, did you think in terms of like uh, Whole Foods and the big chains or like Safeway? How did you sort of envision the distribution of of it? Well, I knew that it had to work in small stores as well. Okay. And it had to work in stores like Whole Foods. Yes. So, um, you know, as I was meeting with the buyers from Whole Foods and I was meeting with the buyers from the, the smaller chains and the smaller stores, listening to, okay, how is it doing? How well is it doing? Is it, what do we got to do to adjust it? What do we, you know, so kind of building that that step-by-step step and then taking it, you know, across to Alberta and Ontario and, and eastward and then getting the broker team to to kind of help with setting up distribution. Yes. Is there an appetite, no pun intended, amongst buyers for new products? Absolutely. There is. Oh, people, there's a people big... Are, people are prepared to take that call. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I think one thing we have learned, because we launched with the, a product, our first T-Pops for the first, I'd say, even three years, they really didn't taste good. Okay. Um, so there was the learning that, yeah, there's the appetite for new product, but if unless your product tastes absolutely delicious, it's unlikely to make it. Yes. Taste is king. And then, and, and on that, and I'm, so much of this conversation kind of reminds me of, of the podcast we had with Brendan Brazier, uh, with Vega, talking mm -hmm. about getting the formulation right, and then also getting the distribution piece correct. Right. But I got a strong sense from him with that the margin for error was fairly small in terms of, you know, once you had a product and you had it on the shelves, if it didn't perform, there wasn't necessarily a lot of second chances. No. So how did you iterate while being out there? Yeah, it's, uh, and, and the margin for error in Canada is one thing. The margin for error in the United States is another. And there really is not room for error in the United States. Um, so that's a, actually something we're working on right now. Because in Canada, you can kind of grow things a little bit organically and, okay. and, and hear back from the buyers and get statistics. And you need to pay attention to those. Um, so we've really listened to and we've weeded out the products that are not doing well, kept the ones that are doing, are going really strong, 
And now we've had a taste of a product that's gone crazy and ballistic, which is the the freezies that are yes. not frozen. Yes. And kind of saying, okay, that's the standard we want to hit uh, and knock it out of the park. And so how do we do that? So we've had the challenge, which is, has been in the frozen, and now we've got a, a really strong customer base there. And then the the one that's gone crazy, which are the freezies and... And, and again, of course, you have that science background and that, of course, would inform your thinking and your analysis. But if a product is not succeeding, how are you able to necessarily zero in on it's not succeeding because it, it's not sweet enough or or in the case of the, the teapots, maybe it's the name, the associations with tea, or maybe it's another, maybe it's the price, maybe it's where it's being presented in the store. Like, how did you know okay, this is the piece that I have to fix. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's something you always struggle with, honestly. You have to be constantly looking at that. We're a young company. Yeah. So, you know, Vega would have gone through this iterations and, and learning and discovering as well. In fact, I work with some of the people from that team. Okay. And, you know, it's really, you got to look at, at the statistics, you know, you look at a case study almost where you see, okay, it's selling in this store at this price and we're selling X number of boxes or X number of bags. Whereas at this store at that price and we're selling less or we're selling more, where is it situated in the store? Where are we getting the cross marketing? Are we doing a push on social media? What is it that is affecting crazy growth in one place and, and a weaker velocity in another place? Yes. So it's a constant, you know, you're in, in a, with a small team, it's, it's challenging, but we're always working with the retailers to find out, you know, what is making the difference. And um, we try to kind of hone it in and develop a story and understand what it is and then take that information, you know, which is what we did with the Freezy. So for example, one of the stores here in Toronto, Fiesta Farms, had our Freezies and there. It was going like crazy, like sometimes 800 bags a week of our Freezies uh, were being sold. And we called them, we said, what, what's happening? And we, we really learned from there what is happening there. And we ended up actually, one of the fellows who was the buyers is now actually working with DBs and he's in California. Okay. And he's building it out in California. And he knew where that has to be situated in the store. What is it that makes that customer throw it into their bag? And he's yes. helped us kind of build out that strategy. And he knows what the buyer wants and he knows what the customer wants because he saw that firsthand. And now you've, you've partly addressed this, but I'm, I'm just really curious. So if, for instance, at a particular store or in a particular neighborhood or city, something is taking off, how much intel can you pull from that? Like, is that the... Is it the store manager? Is it the produce manager? Perhaps not produce, but whoever's responsible for that? Or is it the distributor? Like who in the chain has that granular knowledge? And does that person have the time and an interest in sharing it with you? Yeah. And that's all about relationships. Okay. And so for example, Fiesta Farms has been a great partner and they were willing to talk about, you know, what's doing well, what's not doing well. So we learned a lot from them and then we try to have that connection with the buyers. So we really, really, really work hard at trying to get a direct connection with the buyers at, say, Loblaws and Whole Foods and Sobeys and Longos, who've been a gr- another great partner, to really understand. And sometimes you have to rely on your broker team because they're the ones who have that relationship. So, but you're right, they often don't have the time of day for you because they're so busy. They've got so many brands on the shelf. And so that's where the stores like Fiesta Farms or the smaller chains 
like Longo's are more willing to give us that information. And in New York City, for example, Fairway Market is all over Manhattan. I'm going to meet with them on the weekend. And that's where that relationship is so critical so that you know who the buyer is, you know who the manager is. And um, they become friends. Yes. And you want to go out and have a have a tea with them or have a coffee or have a dinner yeah. and talk about it and really get to understand why something works somewhere and might not work somewhere else. Now, you certainly don't have to cite any names, but I'm interested in your experience with the bigger chains because I've spoken with enough entrepreneurs to, to know that that can be kind of a hair-raising experience dealing with the, the mm-hmm. Walmarts and the Costcos of the world, even Whole Foods, mm-hmm. in, in so much that there's a couple of potential risks that A, they decide they like your product, um, but they want you to scale, mm-hmm. right? And then... So then, of course, there's all sorts of operational issues and costs associated with scaling. And then you're kind of beholden to them, to that relationship, and you're kind of at the mercy of their decision making. Mm-hmm. How how have you mitigated or managed that risk w- dealing with the, the larger chains? Yeah, well, you, I think importantly from the beginning, you need to be large enough to be able to scale and and supply uh, the larger chains and yes. uh, without shorting your other customers. Yeah. So the smaller stores. And so, you know, when you land someone like a Costco, Walmart, Loblaws, Sobeys, you need to make sure that you can supply them. And so we're always saying, well, what's your fill going to be? How many stores is this going to be? So that, and sometimes that information can come like a few weeks before they order. Yes. And that poses a massive challenge. Yes. Um, especially when you're not a big, big corporation, you know, okay, I thought this was going to be in 400 stores, it's going to be in 1500 stores. And so it's a, it is a constant kind of, again, that communication, please let me know how many stores is this going to be in so that we can plan this out and order the ingredients and, or, and make sure our supply is there. So you need to be large enough. And um, in fact, some retailers insist that they not represent more than say 20% of your business, because they know that if they stop carrying you, that could put you out of business. Yes. Okay. And uh, so it's it, it's a balance, and it's it's something that any small company like ours would be challenged with. Coming up, what do you do when a big store that you've strived to crack says, "Sorry, we don't want you on the shelves anymore." No, I, I know you're a private company, so you're obviously not required to disclose anything on the financial side. But can I ask you how you how you funded operations? Your husband's a surgeon, right? So, uh, so I guess, and you uh, you have a academic background, so presumably you had some resources to grow. Is that was it sort of love money that got this off the ground? It was love money that got yes. it off the ground. We had our you know skin in the game. Yes, and then it, there was relationships that we developed with initially actually Export Development Canada. Okay, yep. that really uh, was behind the product and helped us grow. And then we had a group of uh, friends and family who okay. really who knew us. They they knew me very well. They knew what we how how much we had grown, um, and so that was really some friendly money that came in. And then BMO um, helped us and okay. over the last year and has helped us grow. And now you know we're getting the calls from the larger um, professional investors and yes. VCs and private equity firms. And now it's more about you know smart money and we're who who do we want our next partner to be so we're fortunate to be at that place yes um fortunate and but also you, you want to make 
the right next step. Well, I was going to ask that it is a uh, sort of double-edged sword in terms of the complexity of the business. I can, there's so many elements. There's the distribution and then there's the recipe. But then now dealing with the, the financiers, right? Do you have a, a financial sort of advisor or are you just sort of negotiating that piece yourself? I, I, I absolutely, one of the things that I think also going through university is, you know when you don't know something, yes, and you n- you need to know when to say I don't know this and I need help. Um, so absolutely, I never hesitate to reach out to the right people, and uh, we have a number of financial advisors. And one of our key investors actually uh, is a retired lawyer who did a lot of mergers and acquisitions and finance raising, and so he's become an amazing asset to the company okay, yeah. and has helped me make decisions. And uh, we can sit there and and just hash it out and talk it through and that has helped enormously because he's educated on that aspect of the world and capital and and all that and then now we're bringing on expertise from a, a cfo who okay uh, yes yeah who worked uh in one of the larger canadian companies uh, until it's large acquisition and so we're bringing in those expertise to make sure that we make as correct a decision as we humanly can because obviously you never know until you do it Obviously, with your academic credentials, they, they carry a lot of weight in any boardroom and they would be sort of universally respected. Yet at the same time, I, I can imagine a scenario where where people would say, well, you, this isn't. Now we're talking about something that that isn't maternal health, right? Where this yeah. is big boy stuff over here. How do you, how did you sort of handle those situations? And, you know, it's a very good question. I think that what I learned through university that I apply to business is to listen and understand the whole picture and not be egocentric enough to think that I understand everything. And so where I've really used my skills as a researcher is to you're taught to empirically investigate things and be objective and to, you know, I say to my husband, I like to put everything on the table and feel educated about it, and sleep on it, use my gut instinct, and then say, hey, guys, I'm feeling this, what do you think, and be able to have that discussion. And I think, you know, maybe that's from my years of studying yes. and being humble enough to say, ah, oh, this, I'm not getting this in the in using this statistic, I'm not getting this from this research project, I, I need this, we need to look at that, we need to look at this, wait, we didn't take this into account. And that's what you're taught to do, you're taught to look at like yes. everything, put it out there, and not make rash decisions, but something that's actually based on the evidence that's in front of you. Have you encountered a lot of obstacles in terms of people not taking you seriously or the opportunity seriously? Absolutely. Okay. Oh yeah. And how do you how did you sort of navigate that? I left and cried. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's an option. <laughs> it's hard. Um, it is hard when you you get some naysayers, or okay. um, you know there might be some old boys from the old boys club yes. that, uh, you know, look at you and think, well, what does this woman know? <laughs> well, who does she think she is? Yeah. And, you know, something has to feel right. And for me, I have to leave with a gut instinct, like this is going to be a partnership. This is going to be something where we can work together. And it was tougher in the beginning, because now, thank God, we've got to the place where there's a lot of respect getting to almost every store in Canada and all over the parts of the U.S., um, have a little more respect on that front Absolutely. Um, than I did before. So it's a little bit easier now, but it still is 
it still is difficult and I will come across people with egos. Um, one of my philosophies of the company is if you join the team, your ego is at the door. Like yeah. everybody is going to roll up their sleeves and do the work, whatever it is. So I think it's been just weathering through those times. And even when you feel like I always say, like, I'd rather clean the backside of my toilet, but you got to get out there and you got to go through those hard, hard times where you want to just grab your pillow and ball your eyes out. And I think that once you go through those, you realize that the next day you can turn your pillow over and it's dry and it's a new day. And you've learned something by going through the humbling process of someone not believing in you or not seeing what your vision is. Um, so I think as as any successful entrepreneur would say is you, you got to go through those hard times to learn from them and come out on the other side and wake up with the dry pillow. And not to pick a scab, but what was the hardest time? Like if there was one point where you felt like, oh, this is this is dark or bleak or this is more than I anticipated. Could, could you speak about that? Yeah, well, I would say we launched into a store in the U.S. and we lasted about eight months. And that was when I discovered that taste is king. Okay. And we lost our spot. And I didn't know if we were going to survive. And we we had to come up with finances. We weren't at that point as well distributed. We're at a few hundred thousand. And it was it was a tough time to wake up and do I keep going? Do I keep pushing this? Is it worth it? What do I, I have to give myself a timeline that if we don't do X by this date, then I got to pack it in. And what am I going to do then? You know, because we're so heavily involved in into the into DBs. Yes. So that was a hard time. It was a hard time in uh, my marriage. It was a hard time as a mom because I was working so 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 hard, and there were a lot of tears that came my way. And but I I I we got through it, and we did make it through, and we did get into other stores. But I darn well listened and learned, and have not forgotten that statement from the buyer who discontinued our product at that time and the buyer at that time was provided that specificity mm -hmm. this is not succeeding because people aren't liking the taste yeah i mean he said he didn't come out and say it that clearly although yes. he did say to me taste is king and i don't think you got it is there is there regional differences though like mm -hmm. my understanding at least in the u.s that you know so the palate in the west coast is different from the palate in the east coast yeah so how do you how do you figure that piece out well what happened was when i learned you know this taste is king that's when we brought on a chef okay and i said i'm not going in this kitchen that's not my place i yes. suck and i pulled back so there are regional differences for example we'll do crazy well with our pink lemonade in one place and we do crazy well with strawberry harvest in another and we'll do terribly with it in another place. So, and we're learning about the regionality of it now, not as much in Canada, okay. um, but definitely in the United States. But the the core of our product tastes really, really good and it's got a clean label. And I don't have a, sort of the exhaustive list, but I, you know, you there's no GMO, right? Mm -hmm. And things are plant-based or, or vegan and they're kosher. Are there the, the various certifications that some are more kind of discretionary than others? Like, uh, the kosher one, that's obviously of, of concern to people who observe a kosher diet, but that's a fairly small mm -hmm. demographic, it right? Is. Is. Um, so are there certain things you kind of look at, well, yeah, that'd be nice to have, but it's not a game changer? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are certain, like non-GMO, almost all ingredients, if they're organic, are naturally non-GMO. There are a okay. few exceptions yes. to that, but um, the consumer, are they educated enough to know that if it's organic... 
it's it's more than likely going to be naturally non-GMO other than like honey and a few other ingredients. Yes. You know, I think it's an education that we need to get the consumers to understand what are the critical things to look for. I think, you know, even with vegan, I've often wondered, you know, is that actually, could that be a deterrent to some people that they think, oh, it's probably got no taste. Yes. You know, and so now we're kind of describing things more as plant-based, plant and fruit-based, because that's more descriptive of what we are. Yes. Rather than just vegan per se. Yes. Um, because we just use fruits and plants. Now we're ingredient, including some vegetables. So I think you're right. There are things that are more important. And so we're actually pulling off some labels. Yes. And cleaning up our packaging so it's simpler and some of the important things come more forward. Yeah, I would have thought on vegan in particular that it has certain connotations. People sort of think vegan and they're like, oh, God, that. <laughs> right. It doesn't... <laughs> It's like, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't scream, this is going to taste good. Right, right. It, it, it suggests sacrifice. Absolutely. Right. Um, it does. And, and so I wondered if it if it is, if that's almost a detriment to have on the... Well, that's what I've wondered. And, and to be honest, I don't know the answer to that, but yeah. that's a hunch I get because, you know, I, I think of myself and if I wasn't in this industry and I see vegan, I think, oh my God, it probably doesn't taste good. Yes. You know, and, and so, and that's kind of why I've, and that's been maybe a bit of a personal decision of pulling back and just saying and feeling like plant and fruit based is actually more descriptive of what we are. Yes. Um, and there is no dairy. So, yeah, it's it's something that I've gone on as a hunch, I'd say, that that is the interpretation of maybe that having that stamp on the front. Yeah, and, that would be my <laughs> that would be my thinking. Um it sends a different message, but although right. admittedly a healthy one, but plant-based mm -hmm. is so non-objectionable. Right, 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 um, right, exactly. It doesn't mean that it's not going to taste good, you know, when yes, you read plant-based. Yes. It suggests healthy. Yeah, it suggests healthy. And on that, like in terms of uh, your uh, product line, it's, it's fairly small now. Mm -hmm. um, do you see having like a line of items like pizzas and stuff like where does it go from here you're gonna see us all over the grocery store okay yeah so over the last year i've really rebranded everything to we create those nostalgic products there's going to be all sorts of products coming out under the db's banner yes um and we're going to appear in various parts of the grocery store um with the philosophy that everything is still going to be clean label and organic it's going to taste unbelievably good and it's not, you're not going to have seen it out there um, in this form before. So um, I can't tell you exactly what those products are going to be. <laughs> yeah. But they're going to be awesome. And I think we've learned a lot in terms of, you know, what we've seen is really successful in recent launches. Um, and we're trying to kind of match that with these other products coming out. In terms of the, the, the levers that, you know, emotional or, or clearly sort of outlined, um, the fact that it's it's healthy is important. You say taste is king. That it's a Canadian brand. Does that matter? You know, it matters to us. I hope that it matters to other Canadians. Yes. That they see the value in a, a family company. Be that we're Canadian. There's also we're a woman certified now, woman owned company, which makes a big difference for retailers such as Walmart, for sure. example. Now, is that evident on the packaging? Uh, it is on most of our packaging now. Is it, okay, um, that it's Canadian and that it's woman-owned? Yep, probably okay. not as much as it should be. But uh, like but now in the U.S., for instance, would that would you have different packaging? We probably wouldn't emphasize 
especially in this uh, state (laughs) right now in the United States, we probably wouldn't emphasize that as much. Yeah. Although we do produce some of our product, a lot of our product in the United States. So, um, but woman owned is a big thing. We're also a certified B Corp. I don't know if you know what a B Corp is. Is that ethical? Yes. Yes. Okay. Kind of doing business for the greater good. Yes. And and, and so we are a certified B Corporation. And then does that mean X number of profit or percentage of profits goes to charitable ends or or that the processes are ethical or organic or like what is the certification involved yeah it involves many aspects of the business in fact almost all the aspects from you know our packaging um, where we source our packaging where we source our ingredients how we treat our employees okay the processes that happen in-house and how we're treating our suppliers and where we're getting the supply from. And so there are many different aspects under the B Corporation. And one of the meaning, kind of the big reasons why I started this, my husband and I were riding our bikes and deciding should we launch the company was I've always had this dream of coming to the day where Steve, who's an ophthalmologist, could take time away from his practice or pull back or retire and do philanthropic activities. So my dream is the day he he always wanted to join Orbis. Okay. And I don't know if you know what Orbis is. No, is no, I don't. It's actually um, a plane that was donated by FedEx to this charity. Okay. And it has three state-of-the-art operating rooms inside. Okay. And they go to remote parts of the world where, say, for example, uh, someone has ptosis where their eyelid is permanently, maybe, and a child permanently shut even further than a ptosis patient. Okay. Have. And different different ailments where they may not be able to see properly or they may have their cornea at risk or uh, they may have never seen because they need a simple procedure done. And these... Doctors donate their time. They go into these several okay. countries and train the doctors and do the procedures. So, you know, there's a big reason as to kind of the why of why I began the company. Yes. And that all goes into a compilation of becoming a B Corporation. And for me, that's the meaning behind kind of the impetus behind why I started it. And the day I know we'll have kind of made it when he has that ability and he can do that. Yeah, yeah. Step onto the plane. But you won't be joining him anytime soon based on... <laughs> <laughs> no. So I guess at one point in the future, you know, I hope that both of us can do that. And, yes. And, um, you know, when DBs gets to that place where I feel like I could go with him and take our family, hopefully, and go on these on these kind of missions. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of the meaning behind why I started the company. It hasn't been about, okay, what's this going to buy for me? Um, it's been about... If we see success, then what is this all about? Like, why did I do this? And if I can see that it changes the lives of our investors and it changes the lives of the employees and the team, um, that's success to me. Dion, thank you so much. It's been really interesting. I'm glad we had this conversation. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. That was Dion Laszlo Baker, founder and CEO of DBs Organics. If you like this show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite listening app. Drop us a review or let us know a disruptive Canadian business leader who you'd like to hear from. I'm Noel Halsman. You can reach me at nhalsman at oath.com or find me on Twitter at ng This show was produced by Stephanie Werner. We'll see you next week.